Welcome, I'm Huma Gupta. And I'm Camille Cole. And this is Environment in Context, a podcast produced by the editors of the Jadalia Environment page. Today, we will be speaking with Katerina Scaramelli, who is the author of the forthcoming book, How to Make a Wetland, Water and Moral Ecology in Turkey. Katerina is a research assistant professor of anthropology and earth and environment at Boston University. Her research focuses on the anthropology of environment, science, and infrastructure in Turkey. Through this conversation, we hope to explore the diversity of Turkey's wetland ecosystems, which range from alluvial forests to fishing lagoons, salt marshes, and volcanic crater lakes, and to unpack how these shallow water ecosystems are materially and discursively produced into a somewhat flattened category called wetlands. Welcome, Katerina, and thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Huma and Camille. It's a pleasure being here and being in conversation with you. To begin, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a bit about yourself, your academic journey, how you came to be an anthropologist in residence in Delta villages like Dawancha, and generally your interest in the diverse wetland ecosystems of Turkey and the people whose lives are deeply intertwined with those wetlands. Yeah, so I got into anthropology earlier on in college. I was really interested in the relationship between people and the landscapes that they inhabit and how people travel through landscapes and environments and how they change them in the process. And I come from a town in the mountains over the lake, so I was always interested about the relationship between those processes and, and water. And during my early anthropology studies, I really got fascinated by the question of water, both as an object of theory, because a lot of anthropological theory, you know, from Boas famously, whose PhD thesis was about how people see through water. And, and more recently, in ethnographies of environment and infrastructure has really focused on, on water as an object. And people have argued as to whether water is multiple or, or, or singular and how the singularity of water was part of a modernization uh, process. And I was interested in these questions as they related more concrete, concretely to the movements of water flows through mountain rivers. And I ended up, uh, and this is a different story, this is a longer story, but I ended up on the mountains of northeastern Turkey. I was interested in the flow of mountain rivers that were to be captured by small-scale hydropower projects. This was 2008. Uh, projects were very much in the cards. Uh, they've been uh, built now thousands of small-scale hydropower projects. And I really wanted to see how, what, 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 how people cared about these mountain rivers and how this cultural use of water shaped grassroots environmentalisms. And then I ended up from these mountain rivers down to Deltaic wetlands and this was not something I expected would happen but in conversation with an NGO social scientist I remember her telling me that I had to shift my focus from this mountain rivers to thinking about water as it had become an object of national politics and management and that to do that I literally had to follow the flow of water downstream to the Delta's wetlands and I, I didn't know 
exactly the word wetland at the time. I hadn't thought of it as a category, as a kind of place. And I got really curious. And um, I ended up in an, in an environment that is not exactly a, a place that I would naturally be attracted to or, or familiar with. I didn't know much about wetlands and deltas. When I started off, I really just wanted to follow this advice and then go back to the mountains as soon as I could. And then I just ended up staying in these marshes and, and swamps uh, because they ended up being really fascinating places and places where my initial questions about how people make landscapes and how environments form societies and questions about everyday environmental politics through everyday practices and expertise ended up being really fascinating and very complicated in Turkey's wetlands. You also ask how I ended up in a village like Doanja and this is exactly again not a place where I, I, I had expected arriving at. I initially envisioned the project as a study of wetland expertise. I was really fascinated by how the category of the wetland had come into being over the course of the 20th century and what that meant in Turkey and what was the, the Turkish uh, perspective on, on, on wetlands as a, an object of technocratic environmental management and as an object of science and then as a cultural category. But I hadn't thought very much about people whose livelihoods are deeply entangled with wetland ecologies. So I had thought about it just in an abstract kind of way. So for the first few months of my research, I was shadowing an NGO in Izmir and in Samsun, and I was uh, following various groups of wetland scientists and trying to, you know, interviewing bureaucrats at different levels in Turkey about the kind of legal categories of the wetlands and how they played out. Uh, locally and various shifts in wetland legislators and what that meant for environmental governance. And then a friend of mine uh, called me out and he said, you know, you're talking a lot about wetlands, but you haven't talked very much about farmers in the wetland. And, and, and he was right. And partially I was trying to shy away from, there's a legacy in Turkish anthropology from the 50s and the 60s of doing bounded village studies. Uh, I mean, this is like old school anthropological fieldwork that we were you know, trained to move away from. And I didn't want to be a village anthropologist. And then I ended up for most of my fieldwork being, you know, a rural village anthropologist. And, and this ended up being very productive for understanding wetlands as agrarian environments and as places with complex environmental histories of displacement and relocation. And uh, working with wetland farmers on uh, over the course of the agricultural calendar years, while at the same time I also still kept shadowing wetland scientists in various kinds of wetland advocacy events, really helped me understand the multifaceted uh, aspect of this wetland environments in a, in, in a way that uh, was again, un unexpected and not exactly scripted into my earlier research grants, but it ended up very productive and immensely, you know, shaped the, the work afterwards. So more concretely, how I ended up in Doanja is I moved from a Turkey National Wetland Conference that in 2013 was hosted in Samsun at the university. And after the conference, I joined an ornithological, ornithological research camp in the Kizurmak Delta. And then I started chatting with 
farmers in a municipality outside of the ornithological camp. And then I was introduced to several farmers' families who agreed very graciously to, you know, host me in, in, in their homes and, and let me hang out with them for, you know, an indefinite amount of time, of time. And this is how I ended up being the anthropologist in residence in this large um, agricultural town called Doanja, which is in the Kizurmak Delta, which is the, the Kizurmak River Delta on the Black Sea coast of Turkey. It's in the Samsung province. It's um, on the, it, it's one of the, the two sites where I've, uh, I've done ethnography for this project. It's really interesting that you describe kind of like these two communities of people that you were talking to and how you sort of moved from um, following scientists to following farmers and obviously continuing to do both. Uh, but one thing that was that was striking um, to us in your writing was that one of the ways that you brought together the ways that scientists and farmers approached wetlands and approached the Kuzulamark Delta and then, and then also the wetlands in Izmir was thinking about wetlands as objects of care. Um, and you argue that using an analytic of care can help explain the sorts of contestation and, and advocacy that we see around wetlands in Turkey. Um, so could you explain for our listeners what, what you mean by that, what you mean by an analytic of care um, and how it changes how we understand wetland science and, and advocacy? Yeah, thank you. So I started thinking about care seriously when I followed, you know, every day the routine practices of the farmers in the wetlands, and specifically the practices uh, through which they take care of their growing herds of water buffaloes. Water buffaloes had almost disappeared in the Kizurmat Delta and in the Gadis Delta, which is my other research site, water buffaloes have long gone. But thanks to a recent subsidies programs, the water buffalo started coming back. And um, I typically spent my days waking up at five and uh, following women in the barn as they tended to their water buffaloes. And this is an important way of understanding the wetland because water buffaloes are uh, ecological agents in shaping wetland ecosystems as they are. And there is you know, a debate as to whether there should be a, a limit to the number of water buffaloes in the Kizuramak Delta. And there is a debate as to whether uh, the future of water buffaloes should really be in industrial size farms and not through this uh, practices whereby the water buffaloes are grazing freely in the marshes for most of the year. But this is beyond the point. I started to notice that the work of tending to the water buffaloes was effective. It was routine. It was embedded with meaning and significance and, and emotional connections and I thought that that was important to write about. And, and I wasn't quite sure how that would be connected to the work that wetland scientists were doing in the wetland also every day, also waking up at five, also driven by emotional commitments to their work. And then one day I, I just noticed that some of the ways that this wetland scientists that I had been shadowing talked about the work that they were doing in Kizurmak Delta and beyond was really driven by an emotional commitment to maintaining the wetland and, and, and creating it as a stable kind of place that people would understand not just as an agrarian delta but as, as a wetland ecosystem. 
and to explain and study the complexity of that ecosystem and the way it's changed over time. And this was something that reminded me of the practices of tending to the water buffaloes that kind of exceeded the immediate goals of you know, an economic gain for water buffalo dairy or perhaps meat. And so I thought the, the, the logic and the literature on care really would help me focus on intentions and, and the practices, what the work that concretely one has to do if one is to study and advocate for the wetland and kind of understand that as a similar kind of work to the work of tending to the water buffaloes that graze in the wetlands and in the process transform it and are transform, transformed by it. So I really think of care as is everyday practices, tending to relations, the sustained placemaking. And you know, this is uh, on a routine basis, it means just doing you know, transacts and bird counts, is the care of arranging for a meeting, is the care of drafting reports, is the care of getting into uncomfortable conversations with bureaucrats, and, and different agencies and kind of staying within those politically tricky situation and kind of pursuing the work of wetland preservation in ways that some often exceed uh, political divides. And we can talk about that later too, if that's interesting. But of course, when we write about care, uh, care is not just the practice of, of, of nurturing and tending to care, it's also violent, it's also exclusionary, the care for the wetland from our perspectives might mean the disregard for fishermen's access to a wetland lake. And in fact, uh, it reflects power asymmetries and crisscross power relations as well. And so through this analytic of care, then I later started to think about wetlands as places where different people are staking moral claims about livelihood. And these are livelihoods that are uh, I'm not sure I would use the word multi-species uh, in, in, in my work as an analytic, but there are livelihoods that involve humans and people and plants and microorganisms and soil and water. And the, the analytic of care helped me understand those as not just um, the creation of a scientific object, but a project that was driven by certain emotional and affective concerns. I know in your research and in your articles, you talk about kind of the role of ornithologists in conservation and care, but I thought it was really interesting how you discussed Turkish bureaucrats and elites kind of longstanding love of and interest in birds as being grounded in a certain aesthetic experience of nature. Um, as a historian, I was especially interested in how this was rooted in Ottoman aesthetics, poetry, art, and architecture. For instance, you give the example of how these aesthetics have enabled the transformation of Lake Manyas into a bird paradise in the 40s. And um, I'm curious if you could tell us a bit more about this longer history of aesthetics, the invocation of Edenic landscapes and Turkish environmentalism and how they relate to political projects of conservation today. Yes, yeah, so obviously I'm not a historian to speak very eloquently about the various aesthetic and cultural and religious roles of birds in Ottoman and then in Turkish history, but there is, I think, an extended literature on that that I've been inspired by. 
And I thought it was very important to connect two stories that seem initially, they, they look like they're two different narratives and I wanted to bring them together. One is a story of marsh and swamp reclamation from late Ottoman periods until these days and still ongoing. And the other one is a story of wetland cons conservation. And as you know, in my work, I see them and I try to write them as in fact interconnected driven by bureaucrats and scientists' visions. But the third narrative line which connects that is a history of ornithology and also a history of birds themselves. So in par part of my work, I try to trace the history of ornithology in Turkey. And, and some of the story is about Turkey as a destination for European ornithologists from different uh, regions of Europe at different times over the late 19th century to the late 20th century. And, and there is a parallel story that's kind of un, in, in between the lines of all of these European reports of ornithology in Turkey, which is one of local collaboration. So for every uh, expedition from Germany, the Netherlands, the UK, there are countless Turkish collaborators. Sometimes they work for the forestry service. Sometimes they are village heads or provincial governors or local ornithologists or, or collectors who have been doing that work of ornithology and who didn't get official recognition for it in the international ornithology and ornithology adjacent uh, journals until uh, I would say the, the last decades of the 20th century. But you can, we can read this, this history through the lines as well as a kind of a discomfort between the visiting European ornithologists and their Turkish, uh, Turkish residents and Turkish collaborators. So for example, one thing that struck me as I was looking through the archives um, at, at Yale has an excellent ornithology library that I consulted for this part of the project. There's an account of a 1970 ornithology expedition from Cambridge University. In the, in the report, the scientists complain about how difficult it was to find a wetland that was free of turks. You know, wherever they went, they would, they would just find people everywhere. And that was, you know, that was bad. But of course, these were, you know, Turkish rural residents that knew the birds and that had um, religious and cultural stories attached to these birds. And birds are very much part of people's um, everyday life during my field work. I, I got lots of stories of what it means to see a bird in a certain, doing a certain thing in a certain season or birds that uh, people used to hunt, but they don't hunt anymore because they're disappearing and they're very upset with that and wealthier hunters are coming in from the city and then farmers get blamed. So, so birds could, had a, a, a really important role as an object of, of care as well. And um, while I mostly ended up writing about what ornithologists, uh, the, the ornithologists work with birds in the wetlands, there is a part of the research that didn't really make it into the book, which was like about everyday people's relations with birds in, in cities and villages in Turkey. And um, the, the, the connection between birds and paradise is perhaps more tenuous than I had expected. In reading wetland reports that various Turkish ministries have produced in the 1990s and onwards, there's a kind of common refrain of the bird paradise, the Christianity. And I was curious by that and where it came from and whether there was a concept that people actually used. And it turns out that talking to, you know, my urban friends in Izmir and Samsun, they sometimes called 
the Cadiz Delta and the Kusumat Delta conservation area, they refer to it as a Kushchaniti, the, the bird paradise. And it was just the way they refer to that conservation area. And it, it, was, it was in fact the place where they would go expecting to see and perhaps even learn about the birds. And this was a chagrin of local scientists and some bureaucrats who thought that the denomination was very bad, that it created the expectation that wetlands were only valuable as sites for uh, bird livelihoods at the expense of uh, ecosystem grounded ecological understanding of wetlands is a place where different relations come together and they were really trying to kind of convey the message that uh, if, if you go to the, to the delta and you only expect to see the birds but you really don't pay any attention to the other ecological relations that make this a habitat for many species of migratory or, and non-migratory birds, then you're, you're missing out part of the story. And so there was that kind of tension between the idea of the weapon as the bird paradise and the reality of um, the, the bird paradise being used as a shorthand by urban people to refer to the wetland and then people who lived in the wetland or who worked in the wetlands as scientists were trying to move away from that idea. There is another aspect to this question, which I didn't pursue as much in my work, but is, is the, the religious uh, resonance of the idea of, of bird paradise, and particularly the religious association of wetlands and water and life and, and animals. It has you know, a particular res res resonance for my Muslim interlocutors. And they uh, talked to me about that, and I didn't pursue it as much in my work as someone uh, coming from that perspective would do, and in fact, this is work that um, should, should really, and, and I think people have been more recently studying the religious environmentalism aspect of uh, environmental relations in Turkey today. So I, there are certain species of birds that feature prominently in, in my book. There is a story in Izmir about flamingos, and flamingos were objects that signified for many people I talked to, not so much this kind of detached, charismatic, um, avian symbol of conservation, but, but people identified with the flamingo. There was a group of a rural, a group of urban residents that even staged a funeral for the flamingo to call attention to the destruction of the marshes, a destruction that they were also uh, responsible for for because they lived in a neighborhood uh, that was previously marshland until two decades before. And the flamingos were uh, symbols of grassroots organizings against large scale infrastructure interventions, but also very, uh, people I talked to, both uh, rural residents and urban residents talked about flamingos as kind of familiar companions that they would see every day in the wetland and that uh, thought they could really they, they, they understood the flamingos and people as inhabiting the same kind of space in the same kind of ecology. And that was, that was interesting uh, for me in many ways. And then there's, there's many other birds that feature in my writing. Some of them play important roles as proxies for more complicated conversations of environmental politics. And other birds were mysterious and people wondered about the practice of the birds and their environmental impacts. and uh, but through all of this, it 
became clear that it was important for me to attend to different bird species, not as bird species in the abstract necessarily, but particular stories of particular communities of birds in uh, everyday encounters with farmers, with fishermen, with uh, wetland scientists, and with um, urban residents. I have much more to say about birds, but I think I'm going to end here. So I want to switch tacks a little bit, although I have some more questions about birds. Um, but I want to I want to ask about um, another really important part of your argument and something that um, you know shows up in the title of your forthcoming book, which is the the question of moral ecology moral ecologies of infrastructure. So in your in one of your recent articles, you write that quote the delta has always been infrastructural. And I'm curious about what, what you mean by this. Um, what does infrastructure mean for you here? How, how should we think about a wetland as infrastructure? How does that change how we think about, you know, I guess more traditional infrastructures? And, and yeah, what is, how, how does that sort of fit in with the idea of, of moral ecology? Yeah, this is a, a fantastic question. And the question of infrastructure has really shaped the work in fundamental ways. And, and some of these ways are material. So you, you can see that wetland spaces, wetland ecologists really exist through and within many kinds of infrastructure. So concretely, uh, the marshes and swamps I write about are nested between salt pan, and salt extraction facilities and factories and canals and dikes and uh, water treatment facilities, roads, uh, conservation boundaries, which are also in infrastructural institutions and they operate through infrastructural logics. There is an infrastructural funding. There are um, agricultural fields, irrigation and drainage canals, pumps, and so forth. And so everyone who lives or studies these wetlands contends with this material constructions, however, however they might understand them. I thought infrastructure was an important term to work with because uh, it, it's, just like, it's such a capacious analytic in anthropology. I mean, it's probably one of the most expansive kinds of analytics to understand the material world and its relationship with politics and, and cultural logics that we use today. So I started from taking infrastructure in this really, really expansive meaning, you know, the material assemblage or network of things, but also people, things or people or ideas that move. Uh, and they also, you know, obviously remake the spaces through which they move. And also the abstract kinds of, you know, logic um, or reasons that underpins any kind of infrastructural component. We know from decades of work on infrastructure in anthropology and also science, technology, and society that infrastructures are sometimes invisible to you, to those that use it, but very visible to those that build and maintain them or who are trying to break them. And that infrastructures also involve their networks and relations between people. And, uh, you know, some scholars have critiqued a certain perhaps inherent functionalism underpinning some of the earlier theorizations of infrastructure, you know, the idea that something is infrastructural only insofar as it performs a function or it performs some kind of work. Infrastructures do different things and they do different things depending on what perspective it is that you approach them from. 
But I think, you know, in the past two decades, anthropologists have kind of moved beyond this um, functionalist approach if, you know, we ever even did that. I'm, I'm not sure that we did. But so for in, in talking to uh, farmers and fishermen and wetland scientists who had particular stakes in specific, not just wetlands in general, but like specific ecological relations that would take place in a particular wetland environment. They all had to contend with, and in fact, the starting point was the wetlands were not these places of wilderness kind of cut up from human influence, but they, they were very much shaped through the work of infrastructure. And this could take different shapes. So for, to give a couple of concrete examples, wetlands uh, are often, wetlands in conservation areas, they are regulated through flow of irrigation, water, and runoff from the fields, and different agencies had different control over how much water will flow into the wetland and what kind of water and, and what through what kind of seasonal rhythms. And changing that flow of water, both the quality and the quantity and the pulse of it, has a huge uh, ecological impact. It will favor a certain species habitat over the other, a certain seasonal process over the other. And these decisions are made at an everyday basis and very much shape then the ecological form or possibility of the wetland. And everyone that I talked to, again, from farmers to fishermen to wetland scientists, took these infrastructural relations as a starting point and just part and parcel of what makes wetlands, um, you know, wetlands. And, um, there were also infrastructures that constituted wetlands that were produced and maintained through work. So one of my favorite examples to think about that is the work that fishermen perform seasonally for many decades in a wetland lagoon that they had modified and uh, that had been using for, you know, for a long time. And the fishermen I interviewed were recent transplants into Izmir. So their long time really just meant about, you know, a hundred years max. Um, but this was work of moving reeds and stones to change the flow of water into a lagoon to um, encourage these fish to flow into the lagoon and then spawn and then swim back when their season came and then, you know, being catched, being caught at the mouth of the lagoon. And this was an infrastructural work. It was also ecological work because it produced a certain kind of lagoon ecology that would attract certain species of fish to, to uh, go there and reproduce. And the fishermen's work was really later displaced by a university-sponsored project and their infrastructure was uh, replaced with uh, steel and the managerial decision-making patterns were also taken away from the fishermen and into university scientific expertise kind of management. And this generated obviously a huge conflict and huge conversations around it. And what I thought was really interesting about that particular example is that it really revealed that for everyone involved, the wetland was deeply infrastructure. And then the question wasn't whether infrastructure should interfere with wetland ecosystems at all, but like what kind of infrastructural work should be performed and who should make that decision and what kinds of machines or technologies or, or visions should un underpin that. And that um, kinds of concerns and decision making came up over and over again. The, the questions of in the Kuzara map delta of the water buffaloes and how many should graze in the wetlands and 
in what season and what potential ecological repercussions that creates was also a question of, of infrastructure and infrastructure's role in co-producing the wetland environment. And so this is why as a starting point, I take infrastructure and ecologists as co-constituted and co-produced and not necessarily in uh, relationships that are mutually destructive, though of course they can be mutually destructive depending on how you define one or, or the other. And so when you think about infrastructure embedded in the wetlands ecological relations, and this can be both intended or unintended by the people who designed or maintained them, I think you get a, a much richer understanding of both ecology and, and infrastructure, because infrastructure does create the possibility for ecological relations and, and, and life. And that is not necessarily kind of an obstacle to that, or it's not necessarily the thing um, against which ecologists might still unexpectedly flourish as an act of resistance. And they, one, one other thing I would like to talk about in the question of infrastructure is that for the past 30 years, uh, ecosystem uh, economists and natural scientists have talked about, and designers have talked about natural infrastructure. And this is the idea that ecosystems perform uh, work. So for example, the idea that wetlands um, are useful for flood control or for certain kinds of toxic remediation. They filter water, they preserve fisheries. And this is all true, but the logic of natural infrastructure quantifies that kind of work in economic terms and the idea is to make it commensurable to um, work that you would obtain by constructing other kinds of infrastructure. So you can do like a cost benefit analysis of conservation. And I think this is a particular way of uh, through which the wetland category has emerged in the past three decades. There is like a longer history of that, of course, and a longer history of relation between nature and machine that's, you know, much, much, much more complicated than this. But I take that as an object of my own research and when it was interesting to me to see um, in, in Izmir and in Samson instances where wet, instances where university professors or bureaucrats talked about wetlands as natural infrastructure in that particular sense, you know, in performing work that um, other infrastructures would perform and that you, you could measure the functions and you could measure uh, fun wetland functions that uh, that, that, that break. And that was actually not as common as I thought I, I, I would find or as, as common as paradigm as I expected to find. And this was not a, at all a voc vocabulary that farmers or fishermen used. They did talk about wetlands as infrastructure, but not through this paradigm of natural infrastructure. And that was interesting to me. And, and I think as anthropologists in writing about natural infrastructure, we should be quite careful in defining the terms that we use. You know, are we talking about natural infrastructure as this paradigm of ecosystem economics, or are we talking about the ecological relations that are embedded through particular kinds of infrastructural forms and processes? I think that um, this concept of wetlands as infrastructure. I mean, you've kind of complicated it so much for us. Um, I think it seems to be very useful 
in helping us analyze how um, nationalist ideas of nature, value, and development shift, you know, in different eras, through different times. Um, it also, I think, helps us understand how, you know, what appears to be um, on the surface contradictory agendas of conservation or draining wetlands are actually kind of two sides of the same coin. Um, and I'm curious, you know, if you could speak to us a bit about the institutions that are responsible for um, preserving or changing or maintaining these wetlands. I mean, I'm thinking about the Directorate of Wetland Conservation, for example. And I'm curious about how do both these projects of draining conservation or just maintenance or thinking about wetlands as conservation, how do these lead at times to displacement and exclusion of communities living in and around wetlands? What do these communities think about these projects? Um, and it's, I think it's an important question um, for all of us to reflect on because as you're speaking about the fishermen who are transforming um, wetlands into, you know, fishing lagoons, um, there's a sense in which the problem is not an intervention or an, you know, using kind of an analytic of care to approach these landscapes. The problem is who is in charge, you know, what are the power dynamics and what are their conceptions of the landscape that they are intervening in. So if you could just speak to us a bit about these questions. Yeah, absolutely. This is a, a big question, but it Everyone who is involved in the work of wetland conservation in Turkey, and this is not a homogeneous community, there is huge disagreements over what that means, and people come to it from all corners of the political spectrum, which is what made wetlands so fascinating to me, to see people who vote for different parties who are uh, who actually might not talk in everyday life, but sometimes share views and perspectives over how, what, what a wetland should be like and who should make decisions over it and disagree with people within the same kind of political affiliation. That was fascinating to me. But no one uh, obviously can ignore the, perhaps the irony or just a, um, the matter of fact that the agencies in Turkey that are responsible for wetland conservation and drainage. So it would be like the Directorate of Wetland Conservation for wetland conservation and, and for water drainage is the state, um, the hydraulic water work, the Devlet Suishleri uh, that was founded in the 1950s. They have often been nested within the same ministry. And this means uh, at the bureaucratic level, really interesting kind of power dynamics and struggles amongst bureaucrats themselves were often caught in a double bind, but at a different level, it became clear to me earlier on in my work that even though we sometimes think of wetland drainage and wetland conservation as two opposite sides of the coin, in fact, they end up being quite similar in practice. They're both uh, technocratic processes. They're driven through a top-down kind of decision-making. They're driven by concerns with national developments and metrics of su success. So the number of wetland conservation sites in Turkey and the number of species that's protected and the, the international relevance of this project can resonate for certain bureaucrats as really metrics of 
of Turkish kind of nation state success through an idiom of development is not that dissimilar to certain kinds of metrics for agricultural development. And in fact, increasingly, I started to see those processes as really closely related and not just conceptually. In practice, uh, many of Turkish Western conservation sites are at the edges of large industrial agricultural areas and they are fed by the same infrastructures of irrigation and drainage and they're interconnected in really, really interesting and really materially complicated ways. And so to look, to look at one, you also have to look at the other together. In some cases, in the Gidiz and Kizermat Delta, the wetland conservation area is in fact where, you know, the project of expanding irrigated agriculture has failed. And so that's another le level of interconnection. And uh, wetland conservation for some is potentially a site of um, economic development. There is visions about wetlands becoming sites for ecotourism, though I haven't seen that happen um, as much in, in practice. But the transformations, of course, have come along with many layers of exclusions uh, for local re rural residents in particular, exclusion from uh, wetland use. And this can range from a prohibition to gather uh, wild plants and animals from the conservation area. Um, or prohibition or restrictions on grazing or fishing or regulations over the, the form that, uh, of, of the fishing huts that fishermen use. You know, when you go at sea or in a lake, you usually have a little hut ashore where you can get change and keep your material and fix your boat and so forth. And within the wetland conservation areas, even when fishing has been allowed, these kinds of uh, peripheral infrastructural fishing has been tightly regulated, you know, driving uh, some people uh, out. So one of the stories that I heard fairly earlier on in my research, I think in 2014, was from a woman and she had a factory job all her life and also all her life she had been fishing with her husband. Um, and this continued until a few years before my visit the Wetland Management Authority had changed the layout of this fisherman barracks that turned out all the huts and had built kind of standard, uh, quote unquote, ecological huts built with, with wood and thatched reeds. They, they, these huts looked traditional. They were designed to look uh, part of the wetland ecosystem, though of course they were, you know, it was a top-down design. And one of the problems with that design is that it didn't have a separate space where a female fisher woman, female fisher, could get changed from wet, cold clothes at the end of a long fishing day or fishing night. And so overnight, uh, many women, uh, and Turkey doesn't have a lot of female fishers, but there is uh, quite, quite, a, quite a few, uh, were just not able to go fish anymore. That had obviously enormous repercussions on their livelihood and also on their sense ourselves and of, of the possibility to connect with uh, wetland ecologies as part of their everyday life and their family life. So many uh, of the rural residents that I lived with and I, and I worked with were highly ambivalent about the project of wetland conservation. You know, they understood 
you know, li living and working in the land and being ambivalent as well about the kind of hybrid seeds and industrial scale agriculture that they were doing and witnessing what some of my interlocutors described to me as the death of the soil and resulting from their own agricultural practices, they thought that the wetland was worth preserving and they remembered the larger swamps and marshes of their youth, which were teeming with birds and fish. And, um, and they were kind of hoping to reverse ecological degradation that they had witnessed and also had been part of. However, the conservation measures in, the, in both of the two deltas where I've done my research really uh, excluded local residents except to cast them as romantic, you know, holders of traditional knowledge or to cast them as recipient of technical expertise about quote unquote, you know, more sustainable agricultural practices or quote unquote, more sustainable fishing practices or quote unquote, more sustainable weed gathering practices and so forth. And so being, you know, perhaps culturally central but politically marginal, um, farmers were often very upset at the conservation and, and still are at the conservation rules at play, even though they would broadly agree, at least as it came up with, from a conversation with, uh, uh, I, I think about a hundred farmers, they, they agree with the broad premise, but they felt they should uh, take a more important role in it, in you know, shaping what that conservation would look like. And some of the ironies that were pretty apparent for everyone to witness was, you know, not being allowed to maintain a fishing hut or to have access to the beach with your family if you're a farmer, but then see a large kind of government-sponsored um, wetland, you know, ecosystem um, research center or ecotourism visitor center being built in the same site where we're not allowed to, you know, gather leeches or or go or walk down to the beach anymore. The other aspect of this that makes the story a little more complicated than uh, what we see in many other, you know, cases of the effects of conservation errors on local population, which we know from the work of political ecologists has always been a project, you know, entangled with a project of colonial occupation and displacement. But many of, of, of the Delta farmers there were in fact relative newcomers and they or their parents had come, had been resettled in the, in the wetlands um, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, depending on where they were coming from. And they were given, some of them were exchange populations from Greece and the Balkans, from Bulgaria and Albania. Some of them were farmers from mountainous areas of Turkey where, and they found cheap land or they found good work as, as uh, wage workers. And they, you know, even though um, many wetland scientists like to refer to the local population as ancient and homogeneous, in fact, people had different, you know, ethnic stories and different stories of settlement and they had an uncomfortable relationship with the prior histories of Greek and Armenian presence in, in the region. And some of the places in the deltas were, were haunted by, you know, the very violent um, history of, of, of Greek and Armenian uh, displacement and killing and genocide. And people didn't talk, the farmers didn't talk about them openly, but they talked about ghosts and cemeteries and there were hints and it was always in between the lines and um, I thought that was 
really important to attend to and to then write about in my book. Thank you so much. This is, um, it's so interesting to think about the ways that, you know, both on the one hand, scientific and state projects, and then on the other hand, um, the lives of the people who are living in wetlands are much more complicated and we can't really think about, um, you know, it just being a question of the local versus the state um, in a way that, you know, that like it's often portrayed. And so I, I actually kind of on that note, um, one thing that seemed really important to us in, in reading your work was that you insist on taking the concept of moral ecology beyond what you call uh, dichotomies of anti-capitalist resistance and supposedly immoral ecologies. And so I guess the question is, what do you think is, why is this important and, and what do you think is problematic about the dominance of the concept of resistance um, in narratives about ecological change and especially about conservation? Um, and you know, if you, if you can look out a little bit from your own work and from Turkey, how do you think that kind of moving beyond um, resistance as, as, a, as a sort of sole outlook might change how we approach issues of environmental activism and environmental justice um, in wetlands or, or in other kinds of environments? Yeah, it's an important question. I, I don't think that resistance uh, as an analytic is necessarily problematic. Um, it, it is important. It's just not always useful uh, empirically, I think, to understand moral ecological processes. So in writing about moral ecology, I was really inspired by the phenomenal literature on moral economy that's really complex, it's really nuanced. And moral ecology has only emerged fairly recently as an analytic and in context where I think the logic of resistance makes sense, where there are, like, where there are starker relations of oppositions and exploitation and marginalization. But in the Turkish Western, the story is not as stark. You know, the farmers are uh, themselves latecomers and resettled over the lands of people who've been displaced. Um, people who are claiming democratic future for the wetlands are writing out farmers' livelihoods sometimes. It, the, there's several crisscrossing lines of resistance and exploitation. And so I thought that that being Kind of cast into the dichotomy didn't really help me um, empirically really understand what was going on. So if we take moral ecology as broadly, so these, are, these are assessments of ecological relations, so relation between people and plants, animals, microorganisms, but also soil, water flows, uh, climate, and so forth, as, as conduits for ideas about justice, about desirable relations, um, these are, of course, A, grounded into concrete encounters and they're not abstract. And this is why in my work, I found it so important to attend to not just what people say about the wetland, but like everyday practices of, of work and socialization and spending time in the wetland. And they're entangled with, with power relations. So having a, a moral ecological vision of a wetland swamp and the certain relation between little egrets in the swamp and the fields surrounding it doesn't necessarily mean to hold an anti-capitalist or decolonial vision or to even be critical of 
certain uh, hegemonic ideas about the Turkish nation state. And I think we need to be able to write and see moral ecology even when it is still entangled with other kinds of poor power relations and relations of exploitation and marginalization as well. And I hesitate to attribute too much the shape of the wetland in the shape of the ecological uh, politics within the wetland, but it is, it is an appealing kind of comparison to, to take and you can, you can think of resistance in the wetland as being diffused, as being fragmented and more ecological claims that come alongside with wider structures of oppressions. And in the same way, you know, you can think about water seepages in the wetlands are not always visible, not always apparent. Uh, they're really hard to read and they change um, over time. They're hard to map as well. And it's that kind of difficulty with mapping power and resistance in the wetland that led me to theorize moral ecology in a way that goes and moves beyond explicitly, moves beyond this dichotomy. And in, in, in the Turkish context, of course, many journalistic accounts in particular have focused on large grassroots mobilizations. And this is, I think, in context where the starkness of the injustice is much more at play. But in my work, I ended up focusing on on everyday contestations, you know, everyday meanings assigned to particular wetland ecological dynamics where oppression wasn't necessarily as stark and where people were also involved and entangled in multiple positions, in multiple stakes and vines. And this is um, just what led me to theorize moral ecology beyond resistance. And I think it is fundamental for us to be able to theorize that the world that we envision and the politics through which we create that is very much connected to not just ideas about plants and animals and microorganisms and waters and so forth, but it's conducted kind of through that, through these alliances, through this kind of work. Thank you so much. Um, so after, I just want to kind of close it out um, by asking, you know, after discussing all these sort of different aspects of how to make a wetland, which is how you put it in the title of your book, um, you know, the kind of theoretical richness and also the very um, specificness of the, of the places. Um, I wonder if you might be able to end just by telling our listeners if there's one big idea you, that you want people to take away from your book, which I will tell everyone is coming out in March. Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, just to play with the title of the book, How to Make a Wetland Suggest that Wetlands Are Made. And this is not a big takeaway, it's not surprising. But I think it's very, very important to think about how they're made and who makes this decision. And I think the big idea behind it is that this process of making place and making environment is at once it's material and it's symbolic and it's political and it unfolds through times and it unfolds through politics that includes um, other organisms alongside humans. And I think maybe that's the big idea behind the book. Thank you so much, Katerina. Um, I, I can't express uh, enough gratitude for kind of uh, spending time with us today and uh, thinking through these complex ideas. I think both Camille and I uh, can agree that we've both learned so much just from engaging with your scholarship. And I think 
um, as we return to our own work, you know, on Iraq, um, I think we're going to have a much more complicated relationship with these questions of resistance, with this question of infrastructure, with the question of, you know, um, aesthetics, um, bird paradises, and um, ultimately, you know, thinking beyond um, wetlands as some sort of either uh, Edenic landscape that, you know, represents some sort of primordial original way in which, you know, we should um, exist or we should try to conserve these, uh, these spaces or as spaces that need to, you know, be uh, drained um, uh, because of, uh, you know, malaria eradication programs or um, for, you know, transformation into productive economic landscapes. I think we've covered so many topics and I hope that our listeners as well will kind of walk away with a much more rich understanding of the types of questions they need to ask about the various kind of shallow water ecologies throughout the world. Um, and um, I just want to thank you again for your time. Um, Katerina Scaramelli is the author of the forthcoming book, How to Make a Wetland, Water and Moral Ecology in Turkey. And we reached her today in Boston. For more information on Katerina's research, you can find her work on the Boston University Anthropology website. We also welcome your ideas. If you have thoughts about programming or you want to contribute to the Jadalia Environment page, please email us at environment at Thank you for listening and until next time. You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com. To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com, or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com.